0: You're listening to Calvary Spokane's teaching series, Seeing the World Through God's Eyes. Good morning and welcome. Would you uh, turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Exodus, chapter 33, and uh, we're gonna try to answer the question, what's God really like? Because we have a lot of misconceptions, a lot of opinions and points of view, but what is God really like as he has declared himself to be in his word? And if you don't mind, would you stand with me as we begin by reading this passage together, beginning in verse 13. Exodus chapter 33, verse 13. It reads, Moses is speaking, and he says, "'If you are pleased with me, teach me your ways "'so I may know you, and continue to find favor with you. "'Remember that this nation is your people.' "'And the Lord replied, "'My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest.' And then Moses said to him, if your present does not go with us, do not send us up from here. How will anyone know that you are pleased with me and that your people uh, and with your people unless you go with us? What else will distinguish me and your people from all other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, I will do the very thing you have asked because I am pleased with you and I know you by name. And then Moses said, now show me your glory. And the Lord said, I will cause all of my goodness, that is all of his beauty and fullness, to pass in front of you, and I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But he said, you cannot see my face, for no one may see me and live. And then the Lord said, there's a place near me, where you may stand on a rock. And when my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. And then I will remove my hand and you will see my back, but my face must not be seen. The Lord said to Moses, chisel out two stone tablets like the first ones and I will write on them the words that were on the first tablets which you broke. Be ready in the morning and then come up on Mount Sinai and present yourself to me there on top of the mountain. No one is to come with you or be seen anywhere on the mountain, not even the flocks and herds may graze in front of the mountain. So Moses chiseled out two stone tablets like the first ones and went up Mount Sinai early in the morning as the Lord had commanded him and he carried the two stone tablets in his hands. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and stood there with him and proclaimed his name, the Lord. He passed in front of Moses proclaiming the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sins of the fathers to the third and the fourth generation. And Moses bowed to the ground at once and worshiped. Let's begin with prayer. Father, I ask as we consider this passage that we've just read, that your Holy Spirit would would be ultimately our guide and teacher through your word, that we're not here to hear the opinions or points of view of men as we are to hear what your word says that our lives might be based not upon our emotions or our feelings, but really upon the solid foundations of your truth that never changes and is everlasting. So direct us in this time, Lord, give us openness of heart and receptiveness that we can hear your voice and walk in your ways. We pray in Jesus' holy name, amen. You may be seated. It may seem strange to us that Moses asked to see God's face, which is a way of saying not so much a a physical representation of a face with an eye, nose, ears, and so forth, but rather the fullness of God. The word in the Hebrew really means that I might see the totality of your being. And of course, God's response is that nobody could do that and survive the experience. But you see, what was really hard to grapple with was the concept of an invisible God, one that couldn't be represented by any kind of human description, even that of an animal figure, which was pretty common within the ancient world to create some kind of image and say, this is what God looks like, or at least what we want him to look like. But you see, among the ancients, it was widely assumed amongst the various gods that they worshiped, that they had to be represented. There had to be something you could focus on and say, this is who we're going to follow. And much like we see in many places in the world, whether we're talking about Hinduism or if you've ever been to the Vatican or Rome, you'll find that they have more statuary there than just about any place on the planet. One of the things that's often a misconception when you go to the Vatican museums and you look at all the Greek and Roman statues that they have there, that these weren't just works of art, these were actually depictions of gods and, and the Greeks worshiped these images as being representative of God and it's interesting because those gods look just like them except better and that's kind of the way that we would like to think of God, that he's just like me, just a little bit better than I am. Yet Israel was absolutely forbidden to do anything of this nature. As we read back in chapter 20 of Exodus, he said, you shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything, whether in heaven above or on earth beneath or in the waters below. They were strictly forbidden to make any image, and it's interesting because that was considered to be really, really weird in the ancient world. In fact, the Romans would later accuse the Jews of being atheists, not only because they didn't worship the pantheon of gods, all the different gods that they, they held to be holy, but they wouldn't allow any kind of image to be made to them. They had the Ark of the Covenant in the holiest of holies with a mercy seat on it and two angels overarching it, but there was no God, no figure in the middle of it. And so this was considered to be really a strange way of looking at things which may explain that when Moses for for the first time went up into the mountain and was there for four days and 40 nights, the people saw him go ascend the mountain into the fire that was on the top of the mountain and they assumed after 40 days of not hearing from him that it probably didn't turn out well and most likely he wasn't coming back. And so they turned to Aaron and they said, well, uh, where we go from here? And Aaron says, well, give me all your gold jewelry and we'll melt it down and we'll make an image of a golden calf and you'll worship it. And you know, it's like so many things, just when they got done getting it all finished and polished up and they're dancing around celebrating this new God that they were going to follow since Moses' God seemed to have consumed him alive, what do you know, Moses shows up and he's in a bad mood. <laughs> he breaks the two tablets of stone, he grinds up the image, throws it in the water, and makes them drink the water, which, I, from what I understand, if you drink water laced with gold, it'll give you the worst case of, di- case of diarrhea you've ever had, which may have been appropriate. <laughs> But even this idea of forming a figure like the golden calf wasn't something that was completely unfamiliar. In fact, it was very familiar. The golden calf was one of the most popular gods in Egypt, represented by the goddess Hathor. And the reason she was so popular was because she was the god of music, of dance, of joy, of love, of sexuality, and of maternal care. So that sometimes she depicted as a golden calf, other times it's this beautiful woman with these calves horns coming up her head, but the idea that they simply just took the image of a God figure that they really liked and they made it again and said, that's what we're going to worship. We're gonna have something that we can focus on. It also explains why Moses would probably ask the question of God when he says, show me your glory. Or in other words saying show me what you really look like so I can correct all the false conceptions that are out there and they won't go back and make a figure like this. Now it's also kind of more than coincidental later on when Israel divides into two kingdoms and Jeroboam the son of Nebat, Jeroboam the first, creates a separate form of worship and what is the object of his worship? Well he makes two golden calves just like they did in Egypt and said now these are your gods. So there was a real attraction to this particular form of worship because it was so pleasure oriented. It was the kind of religion that made you feel really good in a very sensual way. Which usually when you do something in a sensual way to make yourself feel very good, that's only a short matter of time before you're no longer feeling very good and you're reaping the consequences of that decision. But nonetheless, most of us are pretty short-sighted. We find that the idea that if it feels good, we're going to do it, still is kind of a prominent way of looking at life for most people. But what we find that God not only refuses to do what Moses asks, but he explains why. When he says, no one could behold my glory, if you really saw me in the fullness of who I am, you would be consumed and you would perish. And yet, even though God makes this very clear statement, is not the world yet today filled with all sorts of religions, with all sorts of images of God, or descriptions of God? Everyone has a different opinion of who God is, or what he looks like, or what he expects and demands from people like you and me if we're going to worship him. It's amazing, there are estimated around 4,200 different religions on the planet, but most of the world can be really identified with one of three religious movements. There is Hinduism, 1.1 billion people on the planet would identify themselves as, as being Hindu. And it's interesting because the Hindus have not just one God or not just three or four gods, they have 330 million gods. That means there's one God for every 20 people on the planet. Now, they don't have names, and they're not necessarily even worshipped because it really comes down to the big three for them. There's Brahma, who is the creator god. There is Vishnu, the preserver god. And then there is Shiva, the destroyer, transformer god. So that death comes because of Shiva, but because they believe in a reincarnation of the soul, Shiva's also responsible for bringing you back for round two ad ad infinitum. Now, there's another 1.6 billion people who would identify themselves as being Islamic, the Muslim faith, and Islam essentially has one God, and his name is Allah, and he is a monad. In other words, he is alone and he has no other connected tissues. But it's interesting that even the Quran in Muhammad himself, if they are blasphemed, are considered to be divine, And if you tear up the crown or destroy the crown or even treat it with disrespect, you can be subject to a a death sentence which is often carried out in many other countries around the world. But the largest religion in the world, surprising to many people, is Christianity. Over two billion people identify themselves as followers of Christianity, and Christianity has one God, and yet, Not uniquely, but specifically, it says there are three persons in the Godhead. And oftentimes, I've had people say, how can God be one and be a trinity at the same time? And my answer is very, really simple. I don't know. But that kind of goes along with being God, doesn't it? I mean, if I can explain why God is the way he is, then he's not really much of a God. If my little mind can comprehend him. But essentially what God has revealed himself in the scriptures is that he has these three personalities, a Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and they are one, and how that works is beyond my pay grade to even answer or suppose. Now, I would grant that all religions of the world hold some kind of similar concepts. I mean, they all believe in a creator, and they also all believe that in the concept of sin. Although how they define the creator and his creation, and even what is sin and what is not sin varies widely between the different religions. But where the different religions differ the most are on the things that matter the most. And essentially, they differ on the issue of heaven, hell, and salvation. They have different answers as to what heaven is and how you get there, and different answers as to what hell is and how you avoid going there. And it's, in, it's important that whatever you're doing, you're following somebody who's been there before. If I was going to climb Mount Everest, and I am saying I'm gonna dispense with a Sherpa because I got a handy guide and I'll find myself to the top of the summit, the, the reality is you'll find my frozen statue somewhere along the way, but I would never know how to even get there. I need somebody to lead me. But the question is, is the one who's leading me qualified to lead me, or are they somebody who's just simply going to lead me off a cliff? And that's really the pressing question we face. When we talk about spiritual things, it's somehow we can be so specific about making sure that our GPS is taking to us to exactly where we wanna go, and we're concerned about the destination of our physical body, and yet many people are totally disregarding the direction of their soul and where their soul will end up after death. In fact, most of us are so hydrophobic to the idea of being dead that we kind of pretend like we never will be. And yet, I guarantee you, there is a date on the calendar with your name on it, and I don't know which one it is, but if you give me $3 million, I'll try to make, take a guess. But the reality is, you're going to die one day, and I'm going to die. And, and the older I get, the more apparent that becomes because people who grew up with me and look a lot like me and walk the same path I do are actually dying way before the time that I think they should. It happens, and so the question that's most prominent and most important in our life is, what happens after death? Am I going to heaven? Is there a heaven? Am I going to hell? Is there a hell? Do I just simply evaporate and turn into atomic dust? Or is there something beyond it? Well, it's interesting because if you're a Hindu, basically heaven uh, is something that you attain, even though they don't use the term heaven, after producing enough positive karma that you escape the endless cycles of reincarnation And what happens is the big reward is that you become one with Brahma and you cease to exist as an individual. In other words, non-existence is ultimately the goal. So think about it, you're gonna work really hard to be the best person you can be so that you can get some positive karma And if you get enough positive karma, you get to break free from the cycle and as you go through from reincarnation, you know most of us must have started as amoeba and we've gotten to where we are and we hope to get to God's head someday, but the idea is just simply non-existence. You just blend into the, the pavement. And then there's Islam, which basically portrays heaven as this being celestial garden, filled with every possible sensual pleasure that you can imagine. The whole idea of of 70 dark-eyed virgins are there to wait upon you uh, if you make the grade. But the way that you get there is, in their own words, to have correct belief and to do good deeds. In fact, these good deeds are really codified in what's called the five pillars of Islam. They, they are basically, you have to worship the one true God and his prophet. You have to worship Allah and uh, Muhammad. And you have to recognize Muhammad is the last prophet and you have to listen to what he said, which is kind of confusing because they start with Adam as being the first prophet and then they go all the way through Christ and then to Muhammad. Now all the other prophets from Adam to Jesus all agreed with themselves and then Muhammad came along and changed the story. So I don't follow the logic, but then again, that's not necessarily something that religious people always submit to is the idea of being logical. But that's the first thing. The second thing is you have to pray pray five times a day. That's why they have the prayer calls. If you're In the Middle Eastern country, you'll hear the, them beginning to cry, sing out from their towers, and that's a signal that you're to stop whatever you're doing and to bow down and begin to pray towards Mecca, and then you have to give alms to the poor. Two and a half percent of your income has to go to the poor on a regular basis. And then fourthly, you have to observe the Hajj. Once in your lifetime, you have to go to Mecca and, and observe the Hajj. And last of all, you have to fast from uh, morning till night uh, during the Hajj or during Ramadan. And these are the five pillars. This is what makes you a a, a good Muslim. Now. One of the things that I find that is really consistent when you talk about religious systems, whether it be Islam or or, uh, 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 Hinduism or any of the other religions, is that they all have this common element to it, and that's the idea that whatever heaven is or whatever the afterlife is that you're seeking after, you get there by doing good works. You have to follow some rituals, or some rules, some regulations, or some kind of rigorous thing you have to go through, you have to fast, or feast, or fork over large amounts of money, and somehow with your time, your money, your energy, you earn a ticket that gets you to your respective concept of heaven. And this is essentially what separates Christianity out from every religious system. Because Christianity alone teaches the concept of salvation by grace alone, by grace alone. In fact, it's stated so clearly, most clearly probably, in all the Bible, in Ephesians 2.8, when Paul wrote, he says, it is by grace that you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. So here's an interesting thing to focus on in this passage. It's not from yourself. You're not gonna find the answer to getting to heaven in you. It's not gonna come through your works, it's not gonna come through your intellect, it's not gonna come through any kind of spiritual experience you have. It is not something that's found in you and it's not by any effort or work that you may put forth that you get to go to heaven. You would think that most people would say, wow, what a relief. But frankly, most people would like to find something that they could do that they could point back to and remind themselves of as saying, see, I did this, therefore, I know I'm getting to heaven. I I I accomplished this. I got this tattoo with Jesus' face on my arm or something that you're going to do saying, this is a thing of the seal of my approval into the kingdom of God. The idea that I have to trust God and that his word is true and he's going to keep his promises is the scary part for us, because as the scripture says, the just shall live by faith, we would prefer to live by sight most of the time. No, all the time. We prefer to live by sight. I wanna see it, you know, it's, uh, I it's remember one time when my, I was moving my mother uh, down in California, and, and she, as I was pack, helping pack her stuff, she came out with this little cash box, and, um, You know, she said, oh, I wanted to point this out to you in case something happens, you'll know this is here. And I said, well, what is that? And she said, she opened it up and she said, I have cash in here. She had $10,000 in cash in this cash box. And I said, mom, you need to put that in the bank. And she said, oh, it's all right, it's locked. (laughs) <laughs> okay. <laughs> anyway, so I had her go right down to the bank and deposit it, but the point was that she explained to me, I said, why are you doing that? She says, well, I just remember when I was a little girl and my dad went down to the bank and the bank was closed and all of our money was gone. And so ever since then, I keep large amounts of money with me. Uh, <laughs> well, I get that, She wanted to have something that she could look at. The idea of something being in a bank and getting a statement on a piece of paper guaranteeing you had, well, today we know that can never go wrong, right? (laughs) But you see, other religions do speak about the justice of God and the mercy of God, but grace is something completely different. You see, justice means getting what you deserve, and that's something, we love the idea of justice when we're talking about other people. I want other people to get their just desserts. <laughs> now, for myself, I want mercy, and, and I find that I need to be asking it, because mercy's kind of the other side of the coin. It's not getting what you deserve. So justice is getting what you deserve. Mercy is not getting what you deserve. But grace is something completely different. Grace is getting what you don't deserve. Being blessed when you deserve just the opposite. It's being favored by God and showed kindness even when you don't deserve it. And you may deserve exactly the opposite. And that's where our minds kind of get jangled. Because on one hand, we're talking about other people, we're saying, don't give them so much grace. Make them pay the price. Let them reap the consequences of their actions. But when it happens to us, we're sitting there saying, God, I pray that you would be gracious to me and show me kindness. I mean, this is why Paul prefaces the statement earlier that I read in in Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. He prefaced that in the beginning of that chapter by saying this. You were dead in your transgressions and sins, gratifying the cravings of your sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. You were by nature objects of wrath, but because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions, for it is by grace you have been saved. Now the statement is pretty, pretty condemning in many ways. That he says, God looks at me and he says, you're dead. We often question, well what do you mean I'm dead, I'm alive? Well, Paul points out, and the scriptures teach that there's three parts to your being. There's your body, your soul, and your spirit. Your body is this physical vessel that you walk around in. Your soul is the essence of who you are, but your spirit is this dimension of your life that until you're born again is actually described as being dead in the sense of being lifeless. It's not that it was alive and it died, but it's just lifeless. It's like the egg in a mother's womb that's unfertilized it has all the potential of life but it hasn't been received the spark of life and before I came to Christ I had a body and I had a soul I knew who I was and I tended to sometimes confuse my soul and my body as if they're both the same but we know that there's an inner spiritual dimension to all of us that we realize isn't us And you really recognize that as you get older, because I can look at pictures from my childhood. In fact, I have a picture of when I was a cute little two-year-old boy in one of our guest rooms, and I I sometimes look at it and thought thought, you are such a good-looking kid. What went wrong? You know, it's like, it's one of those kind of things you realize that I'm still me. I remember my father at 81, when he was dying of cancer, and he said, I feel like I'm the same man I was 50 years ago, but my body will no longer obey me. And that's that spiritual reality, we all understand that. That sometimes we have these visions in our minds of being dynamic people and then we wake up. You know, and we realize that as we creak and groan, as we crawl out of bed and sit under a hot shower for three hours in order to get the circulation going again, that even though I feel like I could leap tall buildings with a single bound, I'm having trouble stepping over a pencil. And what is that all about? It's the fact that my body and my soul, the spiritual dimension of who I am, are two very different things. But there's a third capacity that God's given us and that's a spiritual capacity. But it lies dormant inside the the life of man, the soul of man, until the spark of life is, is given by the Spirit of God. When we ask Christ into us, he enlivens that in us and it begins to radiate in its influence on how we think about ourselves, and how we see our lives in this world, or at least so it should if it's truly happened to us. But that's why before I knew God, uh, I was dead. I was living in my transgressions and sins. I didn't have any conscience, necessarily. I mean, I had a conscience about things that I was afraid I'd get caught doing, but if I thought that I could get away with certain stuff without any consequences, then I went ahead and did them. I was living in that, I I lived to gratify the desires of my sinful nature, which is all about me, myself, and I. And he says, because of that, you were an object, your future, in other words, was to be the object of God's wrath and judgment because of your sinfulness. But God who loved me so much, God who has so much mercy in his being, That when I was dead and when I was in those transgressing state, he showed me his grace and he saved me. That I didn't born again myself any more than I can look at my parents and say, you know, I wouldn't be here if I hadn't decided to be born. I had no control over that. That's why Jesus uses that illustration when he says, you must be born again. You have to receive a birth from someplace other than this worldly realm. You don't earn it, you don't get it, it happens to you. And that's how we enter into that new life in Christ. We realize that I have no way of getting to heaven. I have no way of fixing myself. It's all of grace. Now, something that's so important about this that gets overlooked, I find, oftentimes, is it was Lucifer, Satan, who first boasted of how he was going to exalt himself. When he said in Isaiah 14, verses 13 and 14, he says, I will ascend to heaven. I will ascend above the tops of the clouds. That's the beginning of works religion. Lucifer said, I'm going to exalt myself to the very throne of God. I'll pull myself up by my own bootstraps and I'll be good enough. But you see, salvation based upon my works is a doctrine that really finds its origins in the very pits of hell. And all religions that teach it are also generated from the same pits of hell because what it does is it mocks and blasphemes the Christ, the cross of Jesus Christ. And that's why I find it so amazing, it's so difficult for us to stay, even as believers, to stay grace-based in our view of ourselves and the world that we're in that there's something within the idolatrous framework of human nature that wants to be able to point something to something in us or something that we have done and say, for this reason, I know I'm going to heaven because I've done X, Y, and Z. And I'm not saying that there aren't X, Ys, and Zs in your life, and there shall be, should be as we'll see in a moment, but the whole point is that none of those things are the basis for my relationship with God. I remember once asking Gail Irwin when I first started pastoring here, had him as a guest speaker, and I asked him the question. I said, what's the balance between grace and works? And he sat and thought for a moment, and then he looked at me and said, you don't understand. (laughs) Grace, by its very definition, is imbalance. It's all about God and nothing to do with you. It's all about God. And I remember in my mind, I'm going, but I want to balance it out. And we're like that, don't we? We always want to balance everything else. We want to, okay, that picture is level, everything's straight, you know? Everything is the way it's supposed to be. The wheel is turning the way it's supposed to turn. I like the idea of having things balanced. And then I come to this theological equation where God says, I've saved you for reasons that you may never, ever comprehend. And I keep on asking, but God, why do you love me so much? Is it my charming good looks? Is it my, you know, I pan a smile, is it, what is it, God, that makes you like me? And it's sad, but he really, if he were to speak to it, would say to you, well, I just want you to let you know, it has nothing to do with you. It has everything to do with me. I have found attraction in you that no one else will see, that you're a sinner. You're marred. You're, you're imbalanced. You're, you're, in all of your ways, you're, you're broken in so many ways. And isn't that what happens, friends, when we grow in Christ? Do we discover more and more purity within ourselves? Or do we keep on lo- peeling back the, the onion layers and finding more and more reasons why God shouldn't love us? The more I understand sin, the more I understand myself, the more I realize that I have no righteousness for which I can stand before God. There's no point of congratulations. (laughs) Ran into a guy in the airport one time and he was introducing me to his latest girlfriend as as we were talking and he turns to her and says, this guy really knows God. I thought, well that's a compliment, but then I walked away and thinking, but how well do I know you, Lord? (laughs) How well do I know you? Do I really know you that well? And that's, that's the challenge, isn't it? Because we begin to understand that that there is absolutely no ground. When I start looking for a place to stand, a platform to put myself on and kind of straighten myself up and feel erect, I realize that it's by grace that I've been saved and not of yourself. You see, the central message of the Bible the thing that God wants to communicate to us above and beyond everything else is that salvation is by grace alone. It's salvation aside from your works, whether they be good works or they be bad works. Good works won't get you into heaven. Bad works won't keep you out. Now, immediately I say that, and people go, wait a minute now. You're giving people permission to do bad things. You know, first of all, they never ask for my permission, Okay. <laughs> But secondly, you have to understand the point. If you begin to allow yourself to say, well, you know, uh, there, you know, I know that I'm saved by grace, but you know, I'm just such a gracious guy. You'll find out very quickly that you aren't. God loves exposing us. You wonder, God, why do you embarrass me by revealing the dark sides of my personality? And it's because if he didn't, we would go around patting ourselves on the back and becoming those religious prigs who go around pointing the finger at other people and saying, why aren't you like me? But there is somewhat of a balance, I suppose. Grace doesn't mean we're excused from doing good works. As Paul went on to say, again in Ephesians 2, he said in verse 10, for we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. He kinda, in that statement, covers everything. That basically said when God made you, he designed you with the capacity to do good works. The word that he uses there for workmanship literally means to be to craft something, to form something, to make something. God created you with capacities, and every one of us, we're told by Paul later in the Corinthians, is that we're given by God certain unique abilities and capacities and giftings that enable us to do good things in a way that is according to God's purpose and plan for my life. That I was created in Christ to do good works, not to do bad things. That when people do bad things, it is really a a miscarriage of your created purpose. And rather, he said, he has prepared in advance the things that he wants you to do. So God prepares me and he prepares the works in advance and he just wants me to follow him so that those two things might meet and I can find myself doing the good that I was created to do, not the evil that Paul said in Romans 7, I have a tendency to be attracted to instead. But those works, when they're done, are a consequence of grace, not the cause of salvation. They don't cause my salvation, they're just really a consequence. In the same way that when my Asian pear tree bears pears, it's a consequence of the root and the, and the, and the stalk. This tree is an Asian pear tree, and it produces Asian pears with great regularity year after year, praise Jesus. But the whole point is, it's just being true to its nature, and that when I have Christ living in me, I begin to live true to that divine nature that he has placed with inside of me. And every time I see that I do something that is God-honoring, it's to humble me and step back and say, God, this is because of you, not because of me. That's why I'm, I'm reminded every time I stand here that not only how unworthy I am to even be here to talk to you about these things. And how terrible it is when people look at pastors and think that somehow we're the paragons of spirituality. You know, I mean the day that I float on stage here and don't touch ground, maybe you can go there. (laughs) But I not only have to walk on the same soil you walk on, but I often trip over stuff that you miss. No, that's the whole point. It's, it's this humbling reality. Who am I, O oh Lord? Who am I to say anything about you? Knowing just the dark things that are in my own heart. That Mark Twain once said, we're all like the moon. We have a dark side we hope nobody else sees. And I wish that weren't true. I wish that as much for me as I do for you. But it's true. We're sinners, and that, that sinful nature's there, and sometimes I just sit and think about the pettiness of my own thought life, and the selfishness of, of, uh, that often kind asserts itself in such subtle little ways, like in traffic, you know, or in parking lots. Don't you even try to take that space. <laughs> I mean, it, it, there's moments like that where you suddenly go, Lord Jesus, I am pathetic, but because of your grace, I am not disqualified from heaven. Because of your grace, I even have the ability to get it right, in fact, he said to Titus in Titus 2.11, Paul wrote, the grace of God that brings salvation, the same grace that saves us, teaches us It doesn't just save us but also is a teacher tutoring us in our hearts and our minds to say no to ungodliness and to worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in this present age. The grace of God not only qualifies me and enables me to get to heaven, but it also is working in my life, teaching me how to follow after Christ. Now. Some people say, well I'm not into legalism and you'll say to somebody, you know if you're a Christian you really shouldn't be doing thus and such and they say, you're just being judgmental, you're just being legalistic. And right away I know this person doesn't know the word and I'm not sure even if they know Jesus. Because the first thing that the Holy Spirit does we're told by Jesus in John 16 is the Holy Spirit convicts us of sin. The Holy Spirit is not in my life making excuses for me. I don't even need the Holy Spirit for that. I can do that all on my own without any effort at all. I'm just an excuse-making machine. It's not my fault. They made me do it. No, the Holy Spirit convicts. It makes me aware of where I fall short of his glory with great regularity. And the more mature you are in the faith, the evidence of that is the more quickly you own the conviction when it comes, the more quickly you are to agree with God Because even when we look at men like King David who, I mean think about this, the the sweet psalmist of Israel he has one guy murdered and he commits adultery with his wife and then hides it and pretends like it never happened until God exposes him. And I think about, (laughs) God why didn't a lightning bolt just come down from heaven and take him out right at that moment? And the answer is because David was a good repenter. He was quick to say, God you're you're right, I'm guilty. Sometimes the idea of quickly admitting to God that oh, what we have done, and as He shows us sin in our lives, we say, God, that's sin, I recognize that. We look at that as being a weakness. Why do I keep on falling short? Well, let me let you know on a little secret. You're gonna fall short the rest of your life. You know, even as you're on your deathbed, you're gonna fall short. As somebody mistakenly steps on your air hose, you're gonna get angry at them, you know? <laughs> But the whole point is that that's the nature of this thing called your body. And if I had to rely upon the ability of this body to live up to a set of standards, I would never make it. You would never make it. But the point is, it's by His grace. But that grace also makes me aware of those things that are not of Him, that contradict His nature. And it brings conviction into my life, and that conviction really takes hold when, we're, when we agree with God. That's what repentance means, it means that I agree with what God has said. God, I, you're right, I'm being proud. God, you're right, I'm being selfish. God, you're right, I'm being judgmental and critical. I'm holding other people to a standard that I can't even live up to. You're right, God, that in all of these things, I, I acknowledge it to you. That's why Jesus said to the Pharisees, who were experts at pointing out other people's shortcomings without taking a look at their own, and he says, because you say you have no sin, your sin remains. The worst sin is to f- be unwilling to say I'm a sinner and that I need God's saving grace in his mercy. You see, when we read the scripture, we never read that there's a conflict between grace and law. That's a misconception. What the scriptures talks about is a conflict between grace and works. And we get confused because sometimes he says, if you think that you can be saved by the keeping the works of the law, then you don't know God, and you won't get to heaven. You have to know it's by grace. But he isn't in that same word saying, therefore my righteousness that's expressed through my law has no application anymore, that we are what they call antinomianisms. We don't have to follow any of the rules anymore. We can live our life and do whatever we want. And that's a concept that's being pumped into much of Christianity today. That basically I get saved, I got a ticket to heaven, and it's nice if I live for Christ, but if I don't, well that's my choice. I just do my own thing. And the question really arises, if you don't have conviction over things that you're doing that are sin, do you have the Spirit within you that brings that conviction? Again, the conviction of the Spirit is one of the clearest evidence that you're a child of grace. But there isn't a conflict between grace and law. Rather, grace is what enables me to fulfill the righteousness of the law, not ignore it or disregard it. This is why James, in talking about what he called the gospel of grace, he said, it's the perfect law that gives freedom. It's the royal law found in scriptures which says what? Love your neighbor as yourself. That this was the foundation of the law, Jesus said, to love God and love my neighbor. If I know the grace of God, I know that there's a law that he wants me to keep, and that's to love God above and beyond everything else and to love my neighbor more than I love myself. And that has, when you read the 613 commandments of the Old Testament, all of those are related to those two statements. Everything comes out of that. They're just particular applications in various situations, many which are foreign to our world today. But it isn't a moral free-for-all because we've experienced grace. Grace. Because grace is not only a New Testament concept, it's actually an Old Testament concept. In fact, it was something covered in the Old Testament long before it ever appeared in the New Testament. And part of that is that God declares himself to be the same yesterday, today, and forever in Hebrews 13.8, that he's not a different God. There isn't a different God of the Old Testament and and a different God of the New Testament. So that when (laughs) recently some misguided uh, uh, teacher said, well, we need to unhitch the, old tes- the gospel from the Old, old Testament, <laughs> it's, it's like I, I just need to unhitch my trailer from my car because it, makes, it gets much better gas mileage when the car isn't attached to it. You, you can't move the trailer. The gospel of the New Testament means nothing without the gospel of the Old Testament, and we don't refer to the Old Testament and even God's covenants laws as being the gospel, but it is part of the gospel. It's part of the old story. They're integrated so deeply that they make no sense. The sacrifice of Jesus on the cross means nothing if you don't understand the book of Leviticus and why it was required and what it was supposed to portray. And I get, I get a little shocked sometimes when I hear people who should know better saying things like that. Because not only we find stated here in our reading today that he is first and foremost he identifies himself as a compassionate and gracious God. This passage that we read of his graciousness and his compassion is repeated eight more times in the Old Testament. It's the most repeated passage in the entire Old Testament. It's what God, in other words, wants us to know above and beyond everything else. And add to that another 40 times where he says that he's merciful and he's gracious and he is full of compassion. This is repeated from Genesis all the way to Malachi. It's over and over again. This is who I am. I am the compassionate God. I am the merciful God. I am the gracious God. And that grace and mercy expressed, he says, in some very specific ways. I am slow to anger. I am slow to anger. It's interesting. He doesn't say that there are things that don't anger God. God says there are things that anger me. There's all sorts of wickedness that God is angered by, but he says, it's not something that I rush to do. I'm not that angry God who's sitting there with lightning bolts saying, just one step over that line just once and I will nail you. If that were true, there'd be few of us here today, if any. He is slow to anger, he he abounds in love. In other words, it's a limitless supply of love. And faithless, he doesn't just love you when you're doing good, he's faithful to love you in and out, good and bad. He loves you with an unending grace and immeasurable mercy. And he maintains that love, he maintains it to thousands. In other words, it's a way of saying that there is no, no limitation on God's capacity to love. When some people say, well, I I don't know if God loves me, it's like I just feel like slapping and saying, shut up. (laughs) How dare you say such a thing about God? How dare you say something about my God that he can't love you? Do you understand if he can't love you, that means he can't love me? Paul said that God saved me in writing to Timothy, he said that it would reveal the extent of God's grace that he saved even someone like me who was an enemy and persecuted the church and he saved me so that nobody could say that they're beyond the grace and the love and the forgiveness of God. And I think the more you and I understand that about ourselves, the more we believe that about ourselves, the more effective we're gonna be again in, in not only living our life but also helping other people to come to know the same God we know. I think about how many times we think about, well, I, you know, I'm not very good at sharing my faith because I don't know how to answer these difficult theological questions. Can God you know, make, a, a, make something bigger than he can hold? You know? Is it, can he create a rock that he can't carry? And these kind of weird questions that people ask, I don't know how to answer those tough ones. You know, What about the pygmies in Africa? Well, <laughs> most of them are Christians now, so that's kind of a moot question anymore. But we think, oh, I can't be effective. I don't know how to answer those questions. And it's not answering those questions. It's really sitting back and saying, I don't know about you, but I was lost and now I'm found. I was blind. I, I couldn't see. Now God loves me. He saved me. I love the story I read one time of a man who was... He, his, his, his lifestyle was he worked hard and on the way home he stopped at the tavern and he got smashed drunk and then he would go stumble home and wake up and do it the next day. And then he became a Christian, got saved. And he's sitting in the lunchroom one day and the other guys are talking about religion and Christianity and the do-gooders and the more holier than thou's and so forth and so on. And they say, hey Bill, you're a Christian now, aren't you? He said, yeah. Have you ever seen God turn water into wine? And he said, no, but I've seen him turn beer into furniture. I've seen him turn beer into diapers. I've seen him turn beer into food on the table. You get the point? That something happens when God moves in our life and he, he loves us. And that's why he says, lastly, that he is forgiving of wickedness, rebellion, and sin. So much so that even when the prophet Isaiah is speaking to to Judah, which is habitually rebellious and disobedient, they have a perennial sinfulness and worship of idols and all these kind of things that he told them not to do. And yet he says to them in Isaiah 13, verse 18, he says, the Lord longs to be gracious to you. He rises to show you compassion. That's why he would say later on to Ezekiel twice, he says, I find no pleasure in the death of the wicked. I find no pleasure in it. And nor should we, nor should we. Oh, I know, you're saying, well, what do you mean? I, I think that sometimes when we hear evildoers getting their just desserts, we go, good, they deserved it. That's why we call them just desserts. <laughs> I know the logic here is brilliant. You can't get this everywhere. But yet, but even that God says, my heart breaks even when the most wicked man perishes in his sin because he knows what's awaiting them on the other side of eternity. You see, as I read this, I think, what a stark contrast from the ambivalence of the gods of Hinduism or, or the, the stark, harsh justice, the unbending justice of Islam which finds pleasure in in the death of those they consider to be wicked. And they reward those who take the lives of others with promises of eternal blessings. And you look at that and go, there's something sick and wrong. Well, bad theology, when followed to its natural consequences, always does bad things. But it's equally clear that grace is a gift that has to be accepted in order for it to be activated. In the same way I said that a a seed, an egg inside of a woman's womb does not become a living being until it is fertilized, neither do we become active in our faith or response to God until we have been born again. Because for the God of the Bible, justice is not simply the the reaping of consequences, something like karma, do so much good and you get so much good, do so much bad, you get so much bad. If that were the case, you and I, all of us, would be in serious trouble. We read Galatians, and he says, be not deceived, God is not mocked, a man will reap what he sows, and we sit back and go, well, I guess that's the reason why things are going the way they are in my life. Well, that may be the truth, but the reality is, God probably is keeping you from a lot worse things than you realize. One of the things that Paul made very clear to the Romans, we all have sinned, he said, and we all fall short of the glory of God. And the wages of sin is death. I mean, that's that's a living reality. Justice is actually the payment earned and the reward for those who refuse the gift of his grace, not simply people who need it that I believe with all of my heart that God has spared me from consequences a thousand times over. I think about bad decisions I made on this thing or that thing, and somehow God has a way of taking my stupidity and turning it into brilliance. And people go, well, how did you know? Oh, <laughs> I had a magic eight ball and I shook it. <laughs> How'd you know? Well, I didn't. But he tells us in Psalm 103 that he has removed our transgressions from us as far as the east is from the west. Most of us understand the compass enough to figure out what he's saying, right? They don't touch. East and west don't touch. They're polar opposites in the most literal sense, and yet he said that's how far, as far as sin can be taken from a person, God has removed it from us. We don't remove it ourselves. We don't cleanse ourselves. God takes it from us. But what about those who say no to God's grace? <laughs> well, they'll experience the other half of his character described in this passage because if I were to divide the passage into two parts, it would be number one, God is gracious, number two, God is just. And the man who rejects God's grace is only left with God's justice. And he says, yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished that he does hold people accountable for their actions if they don't ask for Christ to take the penalty upon himself. That's what we do when we come to Christ. We, Lord, I, just, I recognize I'm a sinner and I, I recognize that I deserve judgment, but I cry out for mercy. And he says, because you've asked for mercy, I will bestow my grace upon you, which means not only will I remove your sins, but I will bless you in ways that you don't deserve to be blessed. I will bless you in ways that you don't need, deserve to be blessed, and that's what God is. He's like a loving father. He just yearns for the opportunity to pour out his blessings. You know, it's one of those things. You know, if you're a grandparent, you get this. If you're not, then it makes no sense, probably. But my wife and I just look for an opportunity to bless our grandkids. I mean, we do. We just—it's crazy. My wife more so than I. I can't tell you how much we spend in postage every year sending packages with every little thing that they want. We get to spoil them rotten and their parents have to figure out how to control them afterwards. But the whole thing is, it's, it's, you just yearn to just bless them. Just yearn to bless them. Is God any less? Is God any less in your life? Do you understand when God says, this is what I'm really like. I'm a father who who looks at my children and my grandchildren and I yearn to bless them. I yearn to do good things in their life. In the same way that a good parent won't give a kid too much candy because you know it poisons them, he also doesn't make it so they can never have any. But he brings blessings and joys into their life. But the sad thing is, he says, those sins will be visited upon them to their third and fourth generation. Now, that part of it has been really misunderstood. The people saying, well, why is God punishing unborn children for the messes that their parents or grandparents made? Well, that's not what he's saying. What he's essentially saying is that there are generational consequences. There are behaviors and patterns of behavior and weaknesses and tendencies that become enculturated into a family. We know it within terms of criminal behavior that you can have a family where all the kids grow up and, and they're all good except one who's a criminal and you can have the opposite, one that's all criminals except for one and you wonder how'd you end up turning out being such a good person? But there's something that's learned as we observe and we watch and we focus upon those who are around us and influencing us. He said, don't you understand that if you won't own your sin, it will simply be passed on to your children and children. When I came to realize that, I found myself starting to pray saying, God, let these things in my character die in this generation. Let it die with me. I repent of it. I confess it. Don't let me pass it on to my kids. I remember one time when my youngest granddaughter was only about four years old and I came back from overseas and and I remember it was a bright sunny day outside, my wife picked me up at the airport, we went home with my granddaughter and and we're standing out, uh, you know, sitting out in the back deck and I lean back on the deck, you know, and uh, just kinda lean back on the rail like this and my wife looks at me and she goes, and I look at my granddaughter, four years old, and she's she's watching me and she's putting her feet and then she's leaning back and then she's putting her hands just like this. (laughs) And I thought, I've just taught her something totally useless. <laughs> <laughs> we all have this terror, terrorized feeling inside that we have inculcated into our kids something that they will curse us for when they get older. And you have. <laughs> I would like to make you feel better, but you have but you also have the opportunity to put other things in their life that will serve them well through all their days. But those are not the things that uh, need to be defining to you. And those things that were past you from generation can be broken in your life by repentance and submission of your life to the will and the way of God. Following God has benefits in this life. It has eternal benefits in the next life that are most important, but it also has benefits. And there's things that we change in our life because not because we know the rules and that says thou shalt not, we know it because the Holy Spirit has written his law upon the fleshly tablets of our hearts, not on tablets of stone, and he's written them in such a way that we know to say, Lord, your will be done, not mine. What does God really look like? What is he really like? He is gracious and he is compassionate He's slow to anger and and quick to love. Quick to forgive and overlook all of those things when you come to Him and say, Father, forgive me for what I've done. He restores the years the locusts have devoured, the prophet said. He takes the things that are broken and He mends them. Some of you are looking at marriages and family and and even your own lives. You see that they're broken or they've been twisted by circumstance or you just feel like they're, they've been stolen from you. And I'm not denying that that may in fact be the case, but God says, I will restore. Why? Because you earned it? You showed him that you could be trusted now? No, because he's a gracious God. And he yearns for the opportunity to show you the depth of his love and the grandness of his largesse. I mean, just to to begin to understand that how can you not praise Him? I don't want a religion that tells me I've got five pillars that I have to follow and if I go through this ritual every day of my life without screwing up, I've got a better than one in ten chance of making it to heaven. And I don't want a God who just says, well, when you've really gotten through the cycles of endless reincarnations, then you can kind of meld into the nothingness. What kind of a hope is that? And all the world's religions basically you broke, break down in one of those kind of two choices, except Christianity, it says, no, there's a God who knows you by name, as he said to Moses. I know your name. And the phrase name there means I know everything about you. And I'm going to make your life distinct in this world. Just follow me. Father, I pray that you'd help us to understand these things on a deeper level than we ever knew them before. We throw the word around grace sometimes, Lord, and I'm not sure we always (laughs) even understand what it means. Or our understanding is shadowed and shaded by all sorts of other things, Father. But I pray, Lord, that... Today, that you'd give each of us a deeper discovery of what that grace really means. Not just the, to be forgiven, which is so important, but to also be blessed in ways that we really don't deserve. There's not one of us in this room who, if we got what we deserved, would be nothing else but, but atomic dust. But God, you loved us and you removed our sin from us as far as the east is from the west, and you have bestowed your kindness and your goodness. And even when other people won't understand or get angry because we didn't get what we deserved, Lord, you and your mercy confound the self-righteous by your incredible goodness and grace. And for that, Lord, all we can say is thank you. Thank you, Lord. We don't deserve it, but you give it generously anyway. Thank you, Lord Jesus. In Jesus' name.